Principal Matters Podcast, episode 286. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, I'm talking to Eric Garcia about his book, We're Not Broken. Eric Garcia is a Washington, D.C.-based journalist focused on politics and policy and currently the senior Washington correspondent for The Independent. His first book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation, which the Washington Post called Outstanding, was published in August of 2021. He previously worked as an editor at the Washington Post and The Hill and as a reporter at Roll Call, National Journal, and Market Watch. His work has also been featured in The New Republic, The Daily Beast, Salon.com, and Spectrum. Eric Garcia, welcome to Principal Matters Podcast. I usually like to ask my guests before I start asking questions about your content to tell listeners something else they may be surprised to know about you. So one of the uh, one, one, one of the I guess you could say the, the the more surprising things is that I didn't always want to be a uh, be a journalist. I wanted to be a musician. I talk about that in the book, and I, and if you read a lot of the the chapter names, they're named after songs, you know. And there, there was I, I got into journalism because my mom was kind of like, okay, buddy, you need to find something you know more stable than you know playing in a band. And then I was like, okay, I'll pick a more stable profession, journalism. So uh, so, so 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 that's one. Um, so so yeah, that. That's, I guess you could say, kind of the, the fun fact is that I got into journalism through uh, through music. So, yeah. Well, I'm going to say some things to you and to our listeners to just disclose a little bit of the, the emotion that I had behind reading this book. Because as a longtime educator, obviously, I've worked with students with autism, but I have an adult daughter who's been diagnosed with autism as well. We actually read this book. We listened to the audio version of this mm. together. So it's... Um, it's just such an honor to be in the room with you, Eric, and Thank to hear you. the same voice that I heard narrating that entire book. But in your book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation, you tell some gripping stories about your own journey with autism. Yeah. So can you describe what that experience was like for you, especially as a student? What yeah, that experience a- is like for you, especially when you were a student? Yeah, so that, that, that's a good, that's a really good question. It's a really important question. I think that what I should say is that like, so I'm 31. So it's important to remember that I'm as old as the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And your listeners will know these laws very, very well. And how even though I think that any educator will tell you that the letter of the law and the law in practice are two very different things. Mm -hmm. But I think it was really interesting because my generation, that generation of people who are now, I guess you could say like, from like, I would, I guess you could say like 27 to like 32 or 33, we were kind of the test run of that, uh, of disability education and integration. And it's important to remember that the IDEA was the first law that included autism as in disability education. Up until then, there was the Education for Handicapped Children Act. So I think it was, in, I didn't, of course, when I was a kid, I didn't know this, you know, but in hindsight, it's interesting to watch because I, we were almost getting, we were almost seeing a real-time test of what disability education for people on the autism spectrum and autistic people and otherwise neurodivergent people uh, 
were uh, would look like. So, so, so I think that. So, I think that's. A, I think it's it's really fascinating. But I think one of the things that was interesting is that in K twelve. So I should say that like I went to public school from like fifth grade to, from like kindergarten to sixth grade. Then I went to private school because I was bullied a lot in public school. It wasn't because we were rich. My mom worked really hard so we could go to public school. My dad did too. With you know pay child support and my mom worked and worked in retail. But like, I think it's interesting because it almost, I think that a lot of students have almost, if you have, if you're, if you get inadequate services or if you're constantly fighting for services with IEPs and with, uh, you know, having to get a lawyer and getting all, you, you know, fighting tooth and nail with, uh, with the, the school system and the school district, it can almost turn students off from, asking for services once they head to college and head to, head to university. So I, I almost like when I went to, first when I went to community college and then when I went to university, I, I just wasn't interested in asking for services at all because I was like, it's worth more trouble than it's, than it costs more trouble than it's worth, you know? So I was, I was almost kind of like, I'm not interested in this. And it was really my mom who pressured me, like, you really need to do this when I was in community college. And then when I transferred, so I went to uh, the university, I went to community college, I went to Chaffey College before I went to uh, university. My mom really pressured me to do that, and and I would recommend. I think I think community college is a great tool and resources resource, especially for a lot of students with disabilities. And then uh, and then I went to the University of North Carolina, and then when you know that was different because like you know I was living across the country. I grew up in California, uh, but then I went to North Carolina, and obviously I didn't have my parents you know on my you know monitoring my every move. So I almost just felt like, well, I don't really want to have an asterisk to my success. I think a lot of there is a big, big stigma, I think, around asking for services in if you're a student with a disability, because then there's this feeling like uh, and this is why I'm not necessarily it's not to denigrate any teacher who does this, but it's like it's why I'm not a fan of the term special education or special needs, because I feel like it it says like, oh, you're getting special treatment or you're getting preferential treatment. You're not. You're getting the tools so that you can be on equal footing. So I think a lot of but I think a lot of students just by the term special just avert it and they don't want a target on their back and they don't want to be stigmatized. So like that, I think it was more, I think it was just, uh, I, but what I realized was that I was kind of, first when I was a community college and then when I went to university, I was kind of drowning at first. I was really, you know, uh, like help, how do I, how do I do this? Um, and it wasn't until I bombed on a test at, uh, when I was at the University of North Carolina, my first year at the University of North Carolina, it was, I'll never forget, it was like the Friday before, the Thursday or the Wednesday before fall break. I went to my professor and I said, look, I'm on the other of the spectrum. I don't like talking about it, but I need help. And I'll never forget it is that my professor's name is David Pierce. It was for a class I didn't, I wasn't even a major. It was a GE class. I needed to take an arts class. So I took the history of African music, which is so far out of my, uh, my, my sphere. But then, God bless him. I'll always remember. I'll always, I'll always love him for this. Uh, he picked up the phone and called student services, and he said, "They're waiting for you. Go." Um, I will always love him for that because he could have very easily said, "Oh, well, this kid's just looking for an excuse. He's looking for." He didn't change my grade, mind you. He, you know, I had to take that F and wear it, you know, but. He said, okay, we're going to do this. You're going to do this. Uh, I passed the class with a B minus, you know, but because of that, because of that commitment, because of that phone call, that changed my life. And the same, so I think that what needs to happen is that you need educators to be willing to be empathetic, understanding, 
But that is such a rare case. And people like David Pierre are the exception of the rule set a lot of times. Yeah. Well, what I love so many things about that story, Eric. And one of the things that I love, and I think I told you this off the air before we started, was that when I remember listening to that specific part of your journey, and it brought me to tears because your story before that, and you gave a very brief summary of, what, of what's in your book, you experienced a lot of emotional trauma. You, 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 you experienced a lot of pain and learning and a lot of struggle. And yet you also had amazing strengths for the things that you're doing now, but finding mm-hmm. someone who was able to figure out the right accommodations for, to match your strengths uh, was so important. And that happened for you in that situation. Absolutely. I I don't think that I would be here today if it wasn't for uh, professors like David Peer, professors like my other journalism professor, Phil Guillory. I'll never forget him. Uh, He he retired like a year or two ago, but he was your classic Southern gentleman with like the the pristine press shirts and the suspenders and the overalls and spectacles. And he had this really heavy accent from Louisiana, you know, Uh, but like, I'll never forget it. He was uh, talking the, uh, like, like I had a class with him one time and it was it was for my Southern politics class because you had to write a column for this. It was, it was a journalism class. And I remember I did okay on the assignment, my first assignment with him. I got a B minus, but like afterward, after like after I created that assignment, and I remember just being kind of once again, like help. Um, he said, come to my office. And uh, I did like right, it was right before class. He's like, I have a question. And he's like, uh, do you have Asperger's? And on one end, that is, teachers, you are not, educators, do not do that. That is against the law. Like, it, it literally is against the law. It's a violation of, what is it, FERPA? Yes. On the other end, thank God he asked that, he asked that question. Uh, because when he says, he says, okay, I'm not going to help you with you. I'm not going to do your referee, but he says, I'm going to help you narrow down the way you think. He says, I have, I have loved ones on the spectrum. And that changed my life forever. Um, and it taught me how to distill my ideas. And it, once again, it was an empathetic professor. And it was somebody who knew somebody. And it was somebody who had a fuller understanding that allowed me to succeed. So one of the things that I really try to emphasize in this book is, look, I've worked hard. I don't want to diminish any of my work. But hard work only gets you so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are tons of students who work harder than I do and who have worked harder than I do, who just couldn't get through college, who just couldn't get through, uh, who, who, who couldn't get through high school uh, just because they didn't have the right sports. And I think it's really important to emphasize that, uh, yes, we want to teach our kids grit and resilience but on the other end, we also have to teach our educators empathy and to teach our administrators empathy. And I, I, I really do feel for teachers, uh, administrators, things like that, because, again, not to get into too granular details, but your, 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 your audience and listeners will know. But like the federal government has pledged that, OK, we're going to spend 40 percent. We're going to spend of the IDEA budgets. We're going to commit 40 percent. They've only ever spent about 14 percent. Uh, they only right. have ever contributed about 14, 15 percent in the past 30 years since IDEA. So, like, I feel for local administrators, teachers, principals, things like that, because they have to do more with less. But at this, in the same token and in the same respect, 
a lot of them don't even want to start that. What we need to do is we need to recognize that, yeah, we have a mutual interest. We should be, we're, you know, the federal government should live up to its promise. But, you know, I think that they need, I think that a lot of people need to start from that baseline that my professors have. You know, so that's important. Well, what I love about your story also is just what you said earlier, the, the combination of understanding the hard work, grit, resilience, are important elements for getting a good job done. But empathy and compassion have to be married to grit and resilience yeah. in order to meet kids where they are. And as you think about um, your own experience, and this is one of the things that was so intriguing to me about the, the theme of your book, wh- why is it so important for you as you advocate, not just for, from your own story, but for the stories of others, why is it so important for, for you to help others understand that autistic people do not want you to always see them as broken. Talk about that for a minute. So like, I mean, I don't even see myself as an advocate. I just see myself as a journalist who's telling people stories. And like the thing that I wanted to start from the baseline was, you know, we don't see um, deaf children as broken or failed. We see them as having a disability. Even I'm just, I'm seeing, you know, for those who are listening, I'm, I'm looking at you right now. You have glasses. Glasses are an accommodation, but, you know, you have a disability. We do not try to force you to be, have normal sight and normal vision. You can have it if you want. You can have LASIK surgery, you can have whatever. Um, but we don't take it as a given as, oh, you have glasses, so therefore you're a failed version of normal. Like, like, right, right now, like I'm giving the perfect examples. Right now, I tore my ACL, so I had surgery like uh, about like two weeks ago. But like, you know, and a lot, you know, so like, but nobody's going to tell me I can't use these crutches, you know? Or if they do, they have a problem. Like people are going to say, you got a problem, buddy. You know, um, but for whatever reason, for whatever rationale, and you know, I go into the reasons and the rationales why in the book, um, is that we don't have that same approach with autism. We don't, we instead, we focus on saying these are failed versions of normal. These are kids who are damaged. These are kids who need to be fixed. And that we want, uh, winds up, being stigmatizing, but it also leads us to to, to solutions that just don't work. And I think that it's important that we start from the baseline assumption that every autistic student and every autistic person is fine as they are. That doesn't mean that they don't have challenges, that it doesn't mean that they don't have impairments, all that, but it means that they're good, that they are not flawed as Autism doesn't make them failed versions of humanity. And I think that needs to be the baseline assumption in any kind of education uh, for autistic people. And for and I should say that goes for every disability as well. So, you know. Well, thank you for that clarification. And I think that's so important because you're right. At your age, you were the beginning of the conversations that were happening in schools around children yeah. that people didn't even know what to call the diagnosis. And yep. even over the over time, as we've begun to find better services and accommodations for students, um, I think what I also loved about your book too was just kind of the narrative of here's been my experience as the student going through this process that we've all been watching nationally and internationally, um, that we've been able to some we've been able to distinguish some uh, different categories on the spectrum. But um, sadly, there, there was a lot of misunderstanding um, and often misapplied understanding 
to students with autism and you experienced some of that. And as someone now as an adult who's who is in a, a, a thriving occupation, a, a, a highly successful at the work that you're doing, you can now look back and see some things, I think, with perspective that can help educators to, to better understand how to encourage their students through whatever challenge they're facing. And I, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of empathy for educators and I have a lot of empathy for uh for clinicians, especially because, you know, just be, so, so let's use the, let's use the example. Let's just use a classic example is, it, is that I started to get the beginnings of what would eventually become a diagnosis in around 1994 when my parents were doing, when my mom saw an ad in the newspaper, we were living in Wisconsin at the time. It was an ad in the newspaper for like screenings for kids before they went into like preschool or something like that. So like, and that was 1994 was when Asperger's syndrome was included in the was was first included in the DS in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So, like, it's interesting because initially they just they knew there was something there, but they didn't. You know, there's always a lag in the language. You know, just because something's put in, you know, print doesn't. You know, again, like it takes time for people to adopt this and learn that. Oh, this is what that is, and this is what this is. Um, and it's funny because we see a change in real time. We see how it, you know, for the longest time, then like around 1998, 1999, I got diagnosed with what was then known as Asperger's syndrome. And then, you know, at the same time, at, at that time, there were like multiple diagnoses. There was autism disorder. There was pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. There were a lot of other ones. And then like in 2013, they were all put under the umbrella of uh, autism spectrum disorder. Uh, and, and it's, I think it's important to look at that and have that retrospective and have that context because then we could say, okay, these were the things we did in the past. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. And then this is what's happening now. And I think that the difference now is that by virtue of the fact that a lot of kids just weren't getting diagnosed because autism was just so, and then even if they were getting diagnosed, it was such a stigmatizing diagnosis. That first generation didn't have a say in how autism was discussed. Now that generation that like, again, that like 26, 27 to like 33, 35 uh, segment, uh, now can literally speak for themselves, now can literally advocate those, even if they, you know, use a typing device, so whether they have a communication device or they use sign language, or they, you know, use their mouths whatever way now they can communicate and they can advocate for themselves. And I think that that is a big and monumental shift because that those weren't, that wasn't something that was seen as possible for the longest time. I was finding, I was reading when I was, uh, when I was researching this book, I went back and I saw an old LA times article about Temple Grandin's first book. Uh, it was a LA times review. And it said like the first uh, recovered autistic adult, cause they just, People didn't think that adults could be autistic. You know, that was how that was in 1986. There are cars on the road that are older than that. You know, you know, the president of the United States is older than that. The vice president of the United States is older than that. So to, to give people context. These are really new ideas and it is going to be and it's going to take a long time. And it's going to take it's going to take work because we have so much. We've, had, we've learned so much misinformation that countering that with better information, better knowledge, it's going to take just as long, if not longer. Well, let's talk a little bit about, in your experience too, 
um, because it's just so, I think it's always helpful to hear unique experiences. And I'm not saying your experience is going to mirror someone else's, but as yeah. an educator, I often like to ask this question too, which is what specific accommodations helped you in your schooling, especially with someone who's yeah. you, you, with, with someone who has the strengths that you have, but also who had the struggles you have? That's a really good question. So like when I was in community college, I used to take tests, particularly math tests and segregate and segregate. Like, like uh, I literally had to go to like the student learning center and there was this wall that was closed off. It was all windows and I got extra time on my tests and that helped miles yeah, uh, I mean, I, got, I only ever got like the, the best grade I ever got in math in community college was like a C in algebra and like a B minus in um, in uh, in trigonometry. But like still, that was like still better than like what I otherwise would have gotten. Uh, and, and I think that's important to remember because it allowed for uh, because that worked. And that helped because otherwise, even just the rustling of papers was just bad for sensory processing. Like when you, especially when you're hypersensory, like a lot of autistic people, uh, you need that. And then, but, and then conversely, you know, the, but like, again, that may not be the thing that other autistic people need. So I think it's, it's very important that um, a lot of classes be adjustable. And I think another thing that's important to remember is that a lot of these accommodations that we give students, the house was already built before we had disabled students in mind. And it's almost like we're built putting on an attachment afterward. And, it, you know, it's, it's very, it looks very, very different. Um, and, and it's important, I think, going forward to when we're thinking about class, when we're thinking about how we how we educate our children, how we educate our our students, we should do it with disabled people in mind from the get go. It's, it's funny, you know. I'll, I'll give I'll give an analogy. I didn't. Get, I, I should have given this analogy when I wrote the book. But like the perfect analogy is when I when my dad and I um, went to go uh, when he when he dropped me off at the University of North Carolina. He's like, hey, do you, let's go see how the other half lives. And we drove over to Duke. Uh, and one of the things that was interesting was that he was almost kind of, and he and I were both, and I'm not just saying this because, you know, I went to Carolina, but like, we were also impressed because like, we, he, my dad lives in Orange County. So a lot of people, wealthy, you know, rich people who went to Duke, you know, live in Orange County. And he'd heard everything about beautiful about the campus. But then I remember he and I both saying, having the same kind of opinion, which was, they don't really integrate the old buildings with the new buildings that well, you know, like, you know, you could tell that one was old, that there wasn't that perfect blend or that it didn't like, it wasn't like they were, they melded together well. And I think a lot of times in the same way, uh, when it comes to educating disabled students, students with disabilities, a lot of times you can absolutely tell, oh, this was tacked on later. This wasn't, you know, put on at the end, you know, you, you can, you can very, very much tell what the difference is. Yeah. And I think the, one of the takeaways I like from that, Eric, is how do we design learning with all students in mind? And so one of the things that's coming to my mind is I'm thinking about school leaders who are listening to this conversation yeah. is, you know, often I hear school leaders who are learning to include not just teachers, but parent voices and student voices yeah. in the leadership decisions they're making in their schools. But just as important, um, some of your students with disabilities, not just your gifted kiddos, um, oh. but also your gifted kiddos who may not be, um, but maybe gifted kiddos who also have IEPs. And so I think it's just important that you have all voices as, a, as an opportunity to be heard uh, through those experiences. Yes. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I really want is that like, you know, one, one of the things that's interesting to me is like, 
Um, it was really like, I think a lot of people, a lot of educators thought it was weird. Uh, it was interesting. I was talking with Emra Midrigo, who you should have on this podcast today are a uh, autistic um, professor at the University of Michigan. You should absolutely have them on. But like, there's almost this assumption that if you are on a college campus, that they're, and you're disabled, that you must be extraordinary or you must be better than a lot of, you must not be like all those other disabled kids. When really, you know, it's, a lot of times it's chance, just a fate, luck uh, that, that allowed you to, uh, that, you, you know, a good teacher here, a good professor there, a good administrator there, you know. Um, what I would like is I would just like the ability so that, you know, you don't have to be gifted to go to college. You don't, yeah, you work hard and yeah, but like you don't have to be extraordinary to be, to go to university, to go to college, things like that. You can, that is just a baseline assumption that, yeah, if you want, you can go to college. And again, I don't believe everybody needs a four-year degree. Um, my parents certainly didn't, but, uh, but you know, it, it shouldn't be like such an oddity that, Disabled students can, wow, go to university. You know? Wow, we can, you know, get a job? Certainly not. You know, like, I would love for it to just be such a normal assumption. Well, something else that I really appreciated about your story, too, was your ability to understand how to leverage the things that you were really good at. For instance, your fascination or your interest in politics, your yeah. ability to really hone in on on details and and really spend a lot of time digging deeply into issues um all of those things you were able to eventually leverage into the work that you're doing today so as you look back at some of those struggles that you wrestled with uh and you see the flip side of that and how they actually contribute to your um to your occupation what what encouragement might you have to others to educators working with students that are still trying to figure out where they fit no, that's a really that's a really important question. That's a really good question. I think what I would say is that the advantages and disadvantages that I have as an autistic person are should be seen as no different than the advantages and disadvantages that a neurotypical student has. You know, um, my friend Steve Silverman puts it this way, and you know, he wrote the book Neurotraps, which is very. He says that like just because an Apple operating system works different from a Microsoft operating system, doesn't mean one is better than the other. It just means that there are pluses and minuses to the way an Apple operating system is. And there's plus and minuses to a PC operating system. And, uh, you, you know, you might get one thing better than the other on all of them. It's just, it's a trade-off. But I think the thing, the baseline assumption, what educators just say is that neither of these neurotypes is better or worse, rather, this is these are the reasons these, these are the things that they have these are the pluses and the minuses of it and how do we adjust accordingly and how do we navigate accordingly i think that's a better mindset and it's a more productive mindset because then what it does is that is is it allows you to to go in with the assumption that okay this person has abilities and this person has challenges but then again, like the reason why I I'm such an advocate for like including um, people with disabilities in different neurotypes is that this benefits neurotypical students as well, because then once you realize that quote unquote normal students have pluses and minuses to the way that they learn, then you can. And recognize, okay, we should adjust to those challenges that they learn too. They, the, the, there's a benefit to recognizing different neurotypes 
to neurotypical people, just like in the same way that creating a curb cut is beneficial not only for people with wheelchairs, but also for parents pushing strollers, including different neurotypes. And keeping that in mind is a net plus for educators, for neurotypical students, as well as it is for neurodivergent students. Mm. Well, the book is We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation with Eric Garcia. And Eric, I want my listeners to be able to connect with you and your resources and I'd also like to give you an opportunity to share any additional thoughts that you might want to say before we wrap up today's conversation. So first, how can listeners connect with you and your resources if they want to learn more? You can follow me on Twitter at Eric M. Garcia. That's Eric just with a C. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. I post a lot of stuff about autism and disability a lot more. I do a lot more of the political stuff on because that's my day job. I use Twitter for, for my day job. I post a lot of stuff about autism on my Instagram. That's Eric M. Garcia 14. Um, I'm always reposting, posting stuff about autism and posting stuff about, you know, posting things that I find from other autistic people and other autistic educators and autistic influencers. So that, that's always, that's always a resource. You can buy my book, uh, wherever fine, we're not broken, change the autism conversation, wherever books are sold. The paperback edition is coming out in, on August 2nd of this year. So, uh, that is coming out as well. Um, and you can always follow, follow my work at the independent, uh, my columns at MSN. I also wrote a column for MSNBC and uh, I'd love to get in contact with you. So thank you very much for having me. I think the thing that I would like to say is that like, I recognize that, like, you know, my sister was a teacher for a long time. She's changing professions now, like teaching and educating and being an administrator. These are hard jobs. And I want to recognize that. And I want to be empathetic to that. And in the same respect, I want people to recognize that being a human being is a, uh, it's also incredibly hard and being a disabled person is incredibly hard, but what helps one often affects the other. And this, this improves both of our lives. So that's what mm -hmm. I'm saying. Thank you, Eric Garcia. Well, Principal Matters listeners, I know that as you listen to this, you're going to want to connect with Eric's resources and his work. And Eric, I just want to thank you for the time that you've taken today to, to help us to learn more. And Principal Matters listeners, I hope that you have a fantastic week because what you do matters. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. You can find free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com.